everyone, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, where we're just a bunch of blind guys trying to figure out the elephant. I'm your host, UX guy, Lou Rosenfeld from Rosenfeld Media. And I have, at this point, three people joining me today. There might be a fourth, we'll see. Uh, I have Jose Coronado, Rachel Posman, Gunit Singh, and hopefully I'll be joined by Crystal Yan. They are an amazing panel that's going to be discussing the bigger picture of design ops and research ops at this year's Design Ops Summit taking place in New York, October 23rd to 25th. And I, I usually hate panels, but I, every once in a while I get an opportunity to kind of sit with um, greatness. And uh, all right, I'm laying it on a little thick here, but this is a really great group. Uh, uh, so you know whom we'll be talking to today. Uh, Rachel Posman is um, someone who's leading uh, design operations at Uber Eats. Jose Coronado, uh, great to have him join. I've known him for years. Uh, he's a, a design operations leader at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, Ganit Singh uh, is uh, managing uh, customer experience and uh, research operations at DocuSign. And we will be joined, certainly, at the panel in October, if not sooner, by Crystal Yan, a product leader at Mitley. And uh, so we have an interesting mix of research operations and design operations leaders to tackle some big topics. I've asked them, it's kind of not fair, but I've asked them to talk about our three themes that we're covering at this year's conference, which come straight out of our user research. And those three themes are, number one, proving value and measuring outcomes. Number two, partnering outside design. And Theme number three, change management. So these are really trivial, easy ones to tackle. Um, before we jump right in, uh, I, I feel bad. I've been doing a lot of talking. So if you don't mind, the three of you, give me a big hello on three. One, two, three. Hello. Hello. Boy, I hope their timing is better when we're there in person. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we jump in then? Let's start with the first theme about proving value and measuring outcomes. And Rachel, I wanted to start with you. Um, you know, you um, actually have a pretty good starting point around assessing maturity and coming up with quick wins. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing um, at Uber Eats and, and how that you put those principles into action a bit? Sure. Yeah. So I think that the design ops role and design program management role is probably more known and established than I, when I started. But um, I've kind of always been one of the first design program managers or somebody doing this role in um, all the teams that I've joined. So oftentimes there's a, a phase of like kind of proving your value or showing like what this role is. Um, even at uh, Uber Eats, where um, there's a kind of established and large design programming team across Uber, I was the first um, one doing this kind of work on Uber Eats. Um, so some of the things that I do when I first start is I actually kind of use the, um, like the design process to um, figure out what to do, where to start when there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and oftentimes there's a bit of like assessing the maturity of the design team. So understanding like what kind of systems and tools and stuff do they have in place? Or oftentimes they're really more focused on the craft if they don't have this kind of role in place rather than like um, being consistent around like how they work. 
Um, so whenever, whenever I start, I, I start with like really um, kind of the problem definition or the discovery phase, similar to the design um, process and just understanding like who and what I'm working with, just taking stock really. Um, and then it's about just like synthesizing all of the needs across the team. Um, and I really like to communicate what those are to a broad audience. So we're like aligned on what those needs are and start to prioritize them. Um, and then something I've been um, finding really valuable and helpful, especially on design teams like this, where I'm the first one of doing this role is to start with the foundational design focused things first. There's always gonna be those like big meaty cross-functional problems to solve with product and engine, all these other partners. Um, but I think by focusing first on design and really get them like a solid foundation and um, kind of like let them know that you're there for them. and um, the, those are like the first things that I really like to start with on an, on a team that hasn't had this kind of role before. Um, so, um, that's creating like processes and stuff for them. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because you're doing it at Uber Eats, which is a new organization and the sort of, uh, milieu into, in which you're doing that is very different than let's say where you're doing it, Jose at JP Morgan Chase, which is what, 150 years old or, or thereabouts. And where this type of operations is, is probably pretty new. What are you finding is a good way to, um, to start proving value and, and measuring outcomes there? You know, it's, it's uh, a striking uh, similarities to what Rachel just mentioned, but basically uh, my first, uh, the, the questions that I, that I got posed by the designers when I first joined were, you know, what are you going to start solving or solutioning and my answer back to them is like, I don't know. I have to do research. I have to really understand what is going on. Where are the bigger needs that our team has? Uh, what are the bigger pain points? And uh, then turn those into um, an assessment of um, basically where we are as a practice. And um, I was fortunate enough to get the full support from our um, uh, design leadership team uh, to create the space to do that, precisely that, do basically do the research and diagnostic uh, of the practice. And as uh, Rachel mentioned, there's plenty of things uh, with the partners that we need to address, uh, but the immediate need is for the designers to, to see that there's uh, things that are happening that are helping them change or improve the way they work and that they're being supported. So for example, one of the first things I was talking to uh, Josh Silverman in, um, in Helsinki, and he asked me, what was the first thing you did? And I said, well, the onboarding guide for new joiners. He goes like, that's a perfect place to start because we need to make sure that the people that join the team know what they need to do. And even though for those that were already inside, that was not a, a, an immediate perceived win, but because we're always uh, growing the team, we need to have um, a, the processes in place and the support to create that culture that we're looking for. And, and I, then, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I remember in prior conversation, you've also talked about the, the value of design systems at that point as a yeah. sort of Trojan horse of sorts to, to get a foot in the door. Yeah, uh, and um, uh, the, the design system uh, that we have right now is about a year and a half uh, old, uh, which basically preceded me by an entire year. But I think um, uh, the design system is a clearly visible uh, area of value uh, in terms of the value of the design team and the value of escaping design in the organization uh, without having to, to get so many uh, design 
winners in 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 the entire in the entire business. And basically, what we have done there, and um, the the person who's leading the the design system has done this uh, three or four other times in in previous organizations. So have taken a, a collaborative approach, um, uh, trying to be as as open uh, with contributions as possible, uh, with the limitations that we are such a complex organization. So we don't have the uh, the freedom to. Uh, to be a true open source uh, collaboration design system, we have to be substantially managed and uh, and control that, but adding value to the organization as we add components. So, Ganit, I think you're taking maybe a slightly different approach at DocuSign that's more focused on on actual metrics of ROI. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, you, having done research and also, you know, we have uh, design operations as well in the company. Uh, one of the key things which you know we realized as we were maturing on the research maturity model that you know we need to have the research operations and one of the big things which every single leader had asked us like you know what's the value proposition research ops going to provide or what is the impact they're going to deliver so that kind of immediately brought us to a point like hey research ops going to help improve the business productivity but how are we going to measure it so that's kind of you know gave me a little thought for like you know let's kind of understand you know what ROI means because when I'm looking at the executive leaders asking for impact they're defining ROI more from a financial standpoint but when I'm looking at the product leaders you know they're asking for okay how I'm gonna have an impact on a feature or a product which I'm gonna build as a result of the research operations so having defined you know what ROI means for who is the audience is a key thing you know which we discovered as we were kind of you know embarking on a research operations journey per se uh, specifically, if I look at uh, looking at the qual and the quant side of ROI, I think it's not necessarily return on investment. It's more about understanding the impact that research is bringing, whether it's uh, influential impact. You know, research never gonna be able to have a top line direct one to one dollar impact. That's something you know, which I have to educate and also have to prove it through the impact, showing that. Doing a research helps us understand the impact on the adoption, understand the mental models of the customers. So that's something in which we define. Excellent. So um, we've just been joined by Crystal. Hi, Crystal. Hi. Glad to have you join. Um, I'm going to throw this over to you. We're just talking about that first theme of uh, of uh, proving value and, and measuring outcomes. And I know from your perspective, um, much is focused on the um, qualitative side, whereas Ganit's talking about maybe more quantitative definitions, uh, you're um, looking at something a little different. Do you want to talk a little bit about what uh, you look for in terms of evaluating quality at Remitly? Sure. So I think that um, like one of the ways in which we try to make the case for um, research operations is one of our uh, the most important company value that everyone is brought into the company with is um, like a focus on customer centricity. And uh, the company that I work with um, has really put uh, sort of financial support behind this um, value, which I think not necessarily all companies tend to do. So for example, uh, every employee gets $1,000 to travel to one of the countries that Remitly sends money to. And then when you're there, um, employees are encouraged to either um, you know, pick up cash and take photos of their experience or 
um, interview uh, people who are also receiving money um, and learning more about sort of who's the one sending them money and what sort of delivery methods do they prefer. And I think having a policy like this really is part of the research operations practice in the sense that it's really trying to um, get everyone involved in um, doing the research and maybe not everyone identifies as a researcher and sometimes people are afraid that they're doing something not perfectly. Um, but I think that overall, um, the leadership uh, team that I partner with really does prefer that um, every employee feels empowered to get closer to the customer and talk to our customers. Um, and that matters a little bit more than making sure people are doing research perfectly. And so I think just always being able to speak to the values that I know our leadership team has, has been a way that um, I've tried to advocate for building out our research operations practice. I mean, it sounds like a really enlightened leadership team if uh, you're not having to necessarily justify research rather than you're actually, um, you know, kind of putting their values out there in a new way. And uh, I just love the idea of giving money to employees to travel. I want to work there. Uh, but <laughs> for now, um, we're going to move on to the next theme, which is partnering outside design. Now, um, uh, Rachel and... Uh, and Jose and Crystal, you've all talked about a form of co-creation or co-development as a, a good method for um, kind of connecting with people outside uh, maybe the design organization itself. Um, Jose, do you want to go first on that? Talk a little bit about uh, um, whom you're partnering with and what you found to be successful. Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, you know, the, the diagnostic that we did with regards to our processes and our collaboration uh, came about at the same time as uh, a technology leader was uh, doing a, a similar assessment just on the technology processes. Um, so we got uh, introduced by, uh, you know, the people that we uh, in independently talked to. And basically we... Um, encountered that there was a lot of common ground between the technology improve the technology process improvements that he was trying to drive as well as those that we were trying to um, evolve from a design operations perspective and basically what we did was a uh, partner together to uh, insert design into the technology processes that he was trying to improve and insert technology practices into the, um, the overall uh, design process that we were trying to, to work on. And that way we were able to basically leverage each other's work rather than work in parallel or work in a silo and uh, ended up um, you know, with a better outcome altogether. Crystal, I know that uh, you've had some similar success, uh, especially moving quickly to participatory design at Remitly. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I uh, historically have, um, have tried to bring different uh, partners outside of research and design into uh, the research process and the design process um, through having, you know, like a, an hour-long workshop, and I'm introducing different skills to different team members. And I think in actually many contexts, um, especially when trying to drive change in a much larger organization, there's a lot of value in that. But in trying to get uh, partners within um, a specific cross-functional team to embrace doing the research, um, I found it's been really helpful to split up the kinds of activities I would encourage people to do in a workshop 
and do them like do like mini workshops over time. So for example, there's um, a cross-functional team that I lead and I really wanted to make sure that um, everyone on the team from the engineers uh, to the compliance program manager um, really felt comfortable understanding who our customers were and making decisions um, when a decision had to be made quickly and um, it was a decision that they were um, had the agency to make, that they felt empowered to make the right decision on behalf of what our users needed. And so um, I split up uh, some of the activities I would typically put into a single workshop into a couple of mini exercises um, that were part of a sprint planning uh, day and um, alongside other activities where, and these were gatherings where the whole team was together. So everyone was sort of on the same page and learning the same content. And so like the first activity would be uh, maybe I had a couple of quotes from an interview that I had conducted and I asked people to just kind of think about what would be a follow-up question they would ask to someone who said this and then to write those down and then practice asking those questions to each other and then going around and critiquing how the question could be made even better. And so that was one 15-minute activity one week and then two weeks later we did another activity where um, during that period of time, everyone was shadowing uh, an interview that I was conducting, and they, the one thing I asked them to do was that they had to ask at least one question by the end of the interview. And then so the second activity was everyone getting together and sharing something that they learned from the process of practicing that interview, and then also something they learned from that customer. And then um, a third activity that I did was um, like then just turning it on to someone else entirely and they were the one driving the interview um, and so that time the next time when we debriefed uh, they could talk about their experience trying to navigate um, all the different hats that they were trying to wear when they were interviewing um, they could reflect on a moment where they realized as they were asking a question um, a way that they wanted to ask it differently next time um, and then uh, the last activity that i have planned which actually hasn't happened yet is um, a chance for us to all get together and um, synthesize some of the learnings from those interviews together and just make sure everyone's a part of the process of trying to figure out what's the most insightful thing that we learn from this um, and you know, ask each other and it might be a backend engineer or it might be someone um, from our legal team who was actually a part of conducting that interview. Do you remember like what stood out to you when someone said this um, and just making sure that everyone is part of that process? Um, I found that in previous uh, organizations that I've led, um, you know, when uh, someone feels like, you know, a persona just like comes out of the blue, it's really hard for them to embrace it. But when, the, when they're a part of the process of creating that and they're part of the process of like creating the research as well that drives that, um, one, by the time a certain deliverable comes out and it's guiding the strategy for what you're going to build, everyone's already bought in because they were part of the process of talking to customers. Well, I, I mean, there's some really great things to unpack there. One is uh, that you gave them tools and a language so that they could ultimately over time take over the conversation and make it their own. That's fantastic. The, the other thing that really strikes me about your approach is it's iterative and uh, it's done over time. And that makes me think a bit of what Gunit, I believe, is doing uh, over DocuSign with uh, looking at uh, the cadence of how this takes place over time. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, Gunit? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say a plus one on what I was hearing from Crystal. Uh, what we do as, you know, exactly co-creation is definitely one of the big themes. Also what we do is we try and establish the cadence at a certain checkpoints in the journey itself. 
because the research and the research operations is under the product itself. So by default, it's kind of, you know, co-located and co-created, you know, with the design and also with the engineers itself, you know, as we kind of embark on any journey per se. Uh, as far as the cadence is concerned, what I've done is, you know, I established few checkpoints in the year where we're not reacting to the tactical project needs or a product research needs. We have established a framework like we're going to do a planning cycle at every start of fiscal year where one of the lead has been identified. They start by starting a writing a plan for the year and everybody pitches, pitches in to critique and also to provide input. So that's the cadence which gives them empowerment to influence what will be built or what will be researched or what will be designed in the year itself. So that kind of brings all the different parties across from not only from product, also design engineering and also marketing from across the organization. And that is more iterative in the nature because we start at the onset of the fiscal year, but then we have like quarterly check-ins on how we're doing with respect to that particular plan. And that becomes more of a living document per se, which kind of, you know, everybody goes to and refer back to it. Rachel, I think uh, you have some things to add to this. Yeah, I think I think um, I echo what everyone's saying. I think the thing I want to add is that I think program management and design operations can really be that bridge between design and all these other partners. And of course, it's important for these partners to understand like the way design works and the scrappy nature and like how we want to work fast and and um, how how does the designers like to work but i think the opposite is true too that design really benefits from learning how these other teams work and um how to bring business into their design process and flexing the muscle of like why design is important um I, before i worked at um uber eats i was at capital one which is this highly regulated risk averse industry with very like big bureaucratic processes so um coming from adaptive path, all of our designers, um, we were acquired by Capital One. So all of our designers were um, kind of used to this like fast, quick, like we just were designed, we just want to do what we do um, kind of way of working um, to then having to like check all of these boxes that like legal and risk and compliance and marketing and all these teams um, required. Um, so it was my job. And I think I, I really saw myself as this road rock, roadblock remover or, um, kind of this person to um, to help navigate these complex processes. Um, so I would help help them understand like how and why we need to um, kind of partner on these things. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. 
And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. You know, Rachel, I, I, this is an aside. Um, I forgot that you were at Cap One and, and Adaptive Path, and I thought I might go a whole day without running into someone <laughs> who's worked there, but it won't be this day. Um, I want to move on to our last of the three themes. We'll just spend a few minutes on this, uh, and um, that's not really fair because it's like the biggest one. It's change management. And as actionable as a lot of the advice you all gave us on theme two was, um, I think this one's going to be kind of a challenge. Um, some people suggest that change management is really aspirational at best. Um, I wonder if you all would agree or, or not with that. And I'm going to start with you, Rachel, um, because you bring a, a, a heavy acronym to the table <laughs> when it comes to this topic. I, be, I believe it's ADCAR. This rolls yeah. off the tongue. What's ADCAR? Yes. Yeah, so that's actually new to me. Um, but it's something that I've, I've recently started using and it's been super helpful, but, um, so much of what we do in this, these kinds of roles is come in and assess how people are working and then we're tasked to improve it in some way. Um, and so that, that often requires, you know, change in the pay, in the way people are used to working. And that can be frustrating, um, for us and them when you know it doesn't go as smoothly as we hoped and I think like in my whole career I've kind of like intuitively done change management knowing that it's all about the people um, that it's not about the process and we have to bring them along on in the change but I never had like a, a, a framework to use a reference um, until pretty recently I was in a in an internal conference and somebody from the change management team presented um, this this process called ADCAR. Um, and it's something that I've referenced back. So basically the each letter stands for something. A is for awareness. So helping people understand um, the need to change. Um, D is for desire. So um, building momentum and getting people to understand um, or try to like desire the change themselves um, and support that change. And then K is um, know how to change. So you're providing people with the information and the skills that they need to achieve the change. So that can be in trainings. Um, ability is, or A is for ability, which is um, getting them to actually implement it themselves. And then R is reinforcement. So just sustaining the change over time. And as I've been like implementing um, new processes, like bringing the whole design team onto one system to track all of their work rather than them using like 10 different tools. Um, that was a big process that beyond just creating this database and creating the tool itself, more of the work was really getting buy-in from everyone who is really set in their ways um, to make sure they understand like why it's important. Um, and I use this tool to just kind of like remind myself in um, along the way. Well, um, it's a great framework and I know you'll talk a little bit more about it at the, the summit. Uh, Ganit, I don't know if you have the similar situation as Rachel, where you have um, a change management team to draw on for help. 
Um, um, but I know that um, not everyone does, and I know that part of your approach is to differentiate quick wins from the, the bigger challenges. Uh, with or without the help of a change management expert or team, how do you do that? Yeah, so we, we, we don't have a specific change management uh, team per se, but the change management itself is ingrained in the principles uh, of each of the team leads or the management. Uh, as the new managers come on board, I think that's part of their onboarding as well. But one of the key things which we do is to understand how do you keep the lights on if somebody's leaving or some people are kind of, you know, uh, treating. So one of the key things which we do is to understand what are the short-term short wins we need to accomplish in a quarter versus the long term wins you know, we need to accomplish for that particular role or for each and every individual you know which is kind of you know working on that aspect of it identifying that upfront gives visibility to the whole management in terms of how to keep the house running in case there is an attrition in case there's a uh, some people are leaving the organization because that's how we are prepared ahead of the time to kind of deal with it or also at least set the expectations with the partners beyond the research and the design organization. I think the key thing is having that visibility in terms of in the path each of the organization is taking on the on the charter or on the plan, which I was describing in earlier as we partner with uh, cross-functional teams, that kind of becomes a single source of truth for us to kind of maintain that. So we use that more from a change management perspective, especially on the keeping the lights on. Excellent. Um, put, uh, put Crystal on the spot for a moment. Uh, I know that one of the real challenges with change management is just getting people involved, especially designers and researchers, to um, not lose sight of what's happening, uh, that this is a long process and it's easy to kind of forget that it's even happening because you're inside it and it is slow. Um, what have you found useful to kind of keep that front and center for the people you work with? Sure. So before my current role, I worked at the U.S. Digital Service. So we were a team of people who are very fluent in the language of human-centered design and technology trying to drive change inside the federal government, the largest bureaucracy <laughs> ever. Uh, and it's really easy in a culture like that for people to feel like that there isn't momentum. But uh, one of the key values of the U.S. Digital Service um, that were the team that's brought there to try to create momentum. And so one of the tactics that we found helpful in order to try to um, get people more comfortable with changing the status quo is um, oftentimes uh, there was a lot of fear um, that trying something new would introduce more risks. So for example, there was a large product that we were working on and um, it was a huge team of people working on it and we were part of the technical leadership team for this product. And uh, a lot of the senior government stakeholders that we worked with were really like, were adverse to the idea of iterative releases. So, you know, there was a date that we had to, we were legally required to release the product by, and they wanted to like wait until that day to like release it because they were afraid that, um, you know, introducing something and rolling it out with um, a bug when you're working on government services could cost someone, you know, access to really critical care. Um, and really critical services. Uh, but one thing that we did was that we realized that part of the reason why um, this, uh, this idea that like doing, releasing iteratively was more risky um, to, in their mind was because of the motivations of the people going in. So a lot of the people that we were partnering with, they worked in government their whole career. 
um, their last 20, 30 years. And there isn't really an incentive to try to do things differently. There's really just fear of doing something wrong. Um, but a lot of us, we were coming into this role uh, as a term limited service. So a lot of people on our team, we would come in for like two years and then oftentimes go into other civic tech organizations or go back into the private sector. So we had a lot more risk for, um, a lot more appetite for risk. And so one thing we did was we told our stakeholders, how about this? Like, I'm proposing that we take this approach. If it succeeds, we will give you all of the credit. And if it fails, you can blame us. <laughs> and that really, like just framing the conversation that way and saying that over and over again to every person we worked with, whenever we want to try something new, like let's go out and talk to people who use this government service, like a radical idea, um, potentially risky in their mind, um, just saying that we were willing to take um, the blame if something went wrong um, made people feel like, okay, let, I'd be willing to try something new. And then when we were able to convince someone to try something new, that helped our team feel like there was actually momentum in um, changing the culture of the organization and really managing that change throughout the entire uh, government agency through all levels of bureaucracy. Wow. Change management and government. And uh, uh, that's very impressive. Um, maybe we should have a whole conference just on that one of these days. Uh, but <laughs> let's, we, I want to hear from uh, one more person on this third theme before we wrap it up. And that's you, Jose. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, uh, other examples, maybe of the types of tactical successes uh, you found useful to help people not lose sight of change management processes. Yeah, I think uh, not only for people to not lose sight, but also for myself and, and the design operations practice to um, maintain its credibility. Uh, one of the things that we have done is uh, we have identified big ticket items, like for example, processes that we need to change. But rather than tackle the process as a whole, we have begun to break it down into smaller pieces. Uh, so, for example, the definition of done, the combined backlogs between technology, product, and design. And if some of those pieces succeed, we're good. We can put it into practice. If it fails, it's only that small piece that fails. It's not the entire process change uh, um, initiative that, that, that failed. So we're giving us the opportunity to experiment, iterate, demonstrate with a smaller teams and a smaller control risk um, that, uh, that we can actually um, uh, push for that change to happen. And um, that's, that's kind of the, the way, obviously, at a totally different scale, not government uh, or, or public service, uh, but the way that we're trying to tackle um, change in a complex, large organization. I wish we could keep going. Um, but the good news is we are going to keep going at the Design Ops Summit. This panel with these four brilliant research ops and design ops leaders is going to take place on October 23rd. I'll be on stage um, doing my best to moderate, and people in the audience will certainly have an opportunity to ask questions and participate in this conversation. Uh, again, we'll be doing it at the Design Ops Summit in October in New York. Um, I want to thank our four participants, our panelists. They are Crystal Yan of Remitly, Ganit Singh of DocuSign, Jose Coronado of J.P. Morgan Chase, and Rachel Posman of Uber Eats. Uh, you can find them all on LinkedIn. 
Um, I've lost track of all their various Twitter handles, so you'll have to hunt a little harder to find them, but their bios are on the designopsummit.com site, and I hope you'll have an opportunity to meet them all in October in New York. Hey, thanks, everyone. Great to have you join us today in the Rosenfeld Review. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.